It's okay. Glad to have you this morning. There's going to be a picture on the screen. If we could go to that picture, that old picture on the screen, I'm sure you'll recognize these people. You won't know who they are. You won't have a clue unless perhaps you're a history major. Taken June the 28th, 1914. The scene, as you look at it, is not unlike one from a sunny day in Dallas, Texas in 1963. A couple riding along in a motorcade. Uh, Margaret Macmillan, in her book, The War That Ended Peace, explains this photograph in this way. We see a pleasant couple on a sunny morning. They're a little plump, perhaps, and well into middle age. Clearly, they are people of wealth and consequence. They're sitting in an expensive open car, a rarity at the time. She is elegant in a white dress and hat. Although the photograph is black and white, we know from other sources that the flowers she carries are roses, blood red ones. He's wearing a military uniform. As she looks on approvingly, he shakes the hand of a local dignitary. The man leaning down from the car is Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, that vast and ancient empire at the heart of Europe. By his side is his wife Sophie. As it happens, they're about to celebrate their wedding anniversary. By all accounts, their wedding, their marriage has been a very happy one. Nevertheless, the old emperor and his court disapprove of her because she comes from the wrong social class and they humiliate her at every opportunity. But today, Franz and Sophie are in Sarajevo, far from Vienna and its rigid etiquette, and she is being received with full honors as his equal, unknown to both them and the photographer at the moment the picture was made. They have less than three hours to live. Young assassins backed by arm and shadowy forces in Serbia are waiting among the onlookers. The couple's car is attacked, and to make a long story short, they're assassinated. And that happy day was ended, and that event was the spark that lit a greater fire. Five weeks later, Europe's great powers were at war. Austria-Hungary, with Germany's backing, took the opportunity of the assassinations to move against Serbia. That brought in Russia to defend the little Balkan nation. Germany went to war with Russia and its ally France. Britain came to their defense. The fighting lasted for four years and drew in other nations from the United States to Japan. It left nine million soldiers dead destroyed empires and fueled ideologies such as fascism and communism. And so began World War I. James, we're looking at the book of James. We have been for several weeks. He spent most of the last chapter, as you know, talking about the terrible evil of the tongue and how such a little spark can start such a big fire. One person assassinates another's character, and out of that one little spark comes all-out war, war among the saints. And that is the title of the message today. As we look in James chapter 4, we're going to look at the first few verses of the fourth chapter of the book of James. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. 
You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now we're going to walk through this. I I have it outlined for you, and I want to paint a picture for you of the way we are sometimes in the church. And it's not new. This is something that goes all the way back to the New Testament church, and James addresses it. And the problem is not a problem in the church ever. It's always a problem in my heart or a problem in your heart. So let's talk about number one, the fact of war. And James says there are quarrels and conflicts. Or in the King James it says wars and fightings. And that's the Greek word, wars and battles. Here is the first century church with its own problems. Uh, If you go back to the church at Corinth, it had its problems, its cliques, some claiming allegiance to Paul and some to Apollos. And Paul made it clear that whenever we form such allegiances and alliances, we've abandoned our allegiance to Christ. In the late uh, 1980s, a church in Mississippi moved out of a time of mighty revival and strong unity into absolute chaos. The conflict was so bad, the congregation was divided into groups, and they brought someone in from the state convention to mediate the conflict, a conflict that ended with some people leaving. Those things ought never to happen, but they do happen. They happened in the New Testament, and they still happen today. Uh, And the reason is because there is war among the saints, as James noted but it is not God's doing. And so, second, James addresses the cause of war. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie was not the cause of World War I. It was just the spark that lit a greater fire. The kindling was already in place to start the fire before their deaths, and it's the same in the church. War among the saints is usually not the the direct result of one event, but often years of attitudes and emotions of dissatisfied souls who decide at some point to take up arms. And so we see that in the church. So James is not merely concerned with the fact of war, but with what causes it. What is its source? Could it somehow be God's doing or God's leading? Well, James says no. He said the source is your pleasures that wage war among your members. And by the way, he's not talking about this member over here and this member over here. He's talking about these members, the things that are going on inside me. The term wage war comes from a word that means to make a military expedition and lead soldiers into battle. So now James has shifted from talking about a trial to talking about war. He's using all this warfare terminology. So James is identifying this as an inner battle. It's one that's going on essentially not so much in here as in here. Uh, Human nature is in the grip of an overwhelming army of occupation. There is a battle going on inside of you 
and inside of me. I am battling my desires and you are battling yours. The word James uses is pleasures. And the Greek word, by the way, is hedon, from which we get our word hedonism, and it means a life given over to self-gratification. Pleasure becomes God. So with such battles raging within us, me wanting what I want, wanting my pleasure, my way, you wanting your pleasure, your way, conflicts most certainly will break out. That not only is true in the church, that's also true in the home. And we have to be careful. So when the church becomes all about me, when I see the function of the church as to please me, then what James says I will do is I will war and battle to have my way. I will get my little group together and make a military expedition. I will lead my soldiers into battle, the people who, who see things my way. Now, I've seen this. I've been a pastor a long time, and I've seen it down through the years, and it's almost funny when you watch it happening. You see people, and it used to, they, they, all we had was the phone. And so people started the little calling campaign, and now they start Facebook campaigns, and they get their little group together, and they decide they're going to move things one way, and they, they try to shift things in that direction. You say, isn't that good wisdom? Isn't that good leadership? Well, we're going to find out if that's good or not, if it works or not. And James had a little insight into that a long, long time ago before we got to this modern era where we think that we can manipulate circumstances. And by the way, it's not always, uh, as Doug knows, it's not always the membership. Sometimes it's the staff trying to move things in their direction and manipulate circumstances to have things have things their way. So, a Canadian pastor, let me give you an illustration of how strange things happen. A Canadian pastor told the story of how a new denomination got started in, their, in that country. Now, this denomination is not all about this. It's about some other things as well. But it all started the night that a, a, a Reverend Horner was enthusiastically preaching. And while he was preaching, he got his hand tangled up in his tie. And as he got his hand tangled up in his tie, he thought the devil was trying to bind him in his preaching, so he pulled off his tie, threw it to the ground, and stomped it. And out of that one event, from then on, he taught Christians never to wear ties because they bound them in their Christian lives. Others disagreed, which led to quarrels, which led to division. And so today there is a tieless group in Canada known as the Hornerites. Strange things happen, but stranger things happen in churches. Sometimes it's the carpet, sometimes it's the pews, sometimes it's the music, sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. So third, James leads us to consider the strategies of war. How is it that you get what you want? How do you get your way? To what lengths will you go to satisfy your desire to make sure you get your pleasure? Now, by the way, as we talk about this, we're talking about all the wrong ways to do things in the church and to see change in the church. All the wrong ways. So James says, here's the problem. We satisfy our own desires. As you know, people addicted to drugs, which is one of the great problems. Many of you grew up in a time when I did, and you know that you could go to bed at night. All we had, we, had, we didn't have an air condition in the summertime. We had a fan, it was in my room, in the bedroom, just a fan that sucked air out of the house. It didn't blow air in the house, it just sucked it out. And all the doors and windows were open. 
our screen door, our, our wooden door was open and our screen door was all we had. We lived in town. We had a screen door and we latched the screen door. The only reason we latched the screen door was to keep the dogs out of the house because the dogs would come in the house if the screen door wasn't latched. They could, you know how a dog will do. He learns. He can pop that door open and come on in. And so it, we lived in a safe world in the 50s and 60s. We lived in a safe community. Drugs have changed all that. They changed all that so that people will do anything to satisfy that, that need, that high that, 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 that they want so desperately that they will steal, sometimes even kill, to satisfy that desire. Now, a man who is addicted to having his own way, a man who needs to be pleased, a man for whom God's work has become all about me, will do nothing to get his own way. Now, to what lengths were these people in Serbia willing to go to get their way? Well, they were willing to assassinate a man and his wife. It goes back further than that. To what lengths were the Pharisees and the Sadducees willing to go to get their way, to keep their way? They were willing to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times have we seen the same strategy of war among the saints? Verse 2, you lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious. And by the way, this word envious means zeal which is heated to the point of boiling. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight. This word means armed combatants that engage in hand-to-hand combat. And you quarrel or you war. Now this, this verse paints a pretty ugly picture. Much uglier than it seems on the surface. It's a picture that's often ended the happiness of a church or the happiness of a family, and brought great grief to the heart of God. Saints, God's people, become willing to go to any length to get their way. Though there is no clash of swords and no blood, nevertheless, on a spiritual level, it's armed combatants in hand-to-hand combat, in a, engaging in all-out war, what James describes as war, among the saints. War is always about something. Somebody wants something. You know, we're talking about today the Russian annexation of Crimea and the conflict they have with Ukraine. This nation wanting that. This nation wanting that. Tariffs. uh, Whatever. All this stuff that's going on in our world today that creates tension. Everybody wants something. So what is it? What are the spoils of war in this war among the saints. What are we out to gain? Well, James says, so warped is the congregation at war that even their praying dishonors God. They pray for their own desires if they pray at all. Look at verse 2, the middle of verse 2 and verse 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And now we've come to a point where we're really getting to deal with the heart of the matter. How do you initiate change in the church? How is it when you want to see God's will accomplished or God's activity done, how do you do it? He says, well, here's the problem. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may consume it on your pleasures. Instead of first seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, they seek their own personal pleasure. It ceases to be, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, and instead it becomes, 
my kingdom come, my will be done. And everyone who doesn't want my way can take the highway. And such is the sound of war among the saints. Now, the spoils of war among the saints, are they really seeking God? No, they're seeking something from God, James says, so that they can spend it on their own pleasures. It's all about me, about my way, about my desire, and if I can't have it my way, then I'll just quit and go home. Don't tell me you've never seen that happen before in somebody's church. Now, you also need to hear James answer this question. Who is on the Lord's side in this war among the saints? So we come to verse 4. He says, you adulteresses. Strange word, isn't it? Strange word to suddenly throw out in the middle of a sermon to a bunch of church members. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, not a word has been said about marriage. Why does God God speak of adultery? Well, it's not about unfaithfulness in a human relationship. He's talking about unfaithfulness to God. A spiritual adultery. Because rather than having God as the single passion of our heart, we have gotten into a relationship with another lover. The church has moved into a relationship with someone other than God. It's a serious problem in the church today. Rather than having God as our first love, We've turned to other things. We've turned to other pleasures. We've turned to other passions. And we've adopted the world's way in our church, in our churches. And we seek to do things the world's way rather than God's way. And the end result is often disaster. You know what the Bible says? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, what James says is that the person who engages in this war among the saints to get their own way, to accomplish their own purposes, has become, has shown themselves, they've exhibited themselves, they've come out of the closet as an enemy of God. I've seen it happen over and over. This war among the saints is the new normal, but it's nothing more than an effort for each group to get its own way. That's not God's way or God's will. Now, let's scratch all that out and try to forget it. Let's try to forget where it happened in the past. Let's try to forget when it happened here. Let's try to find out how in the world then can we get on the same page with God. And this is what James turns to in the middle of this passage. He presents God's battle plan 
for the true believer. If I want to see something happen in my church, if I want to see something happen in my home, if I want to see something happen in my own life, how would I go about it? What would I do? Well, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The battle plan for the true believer is to pray, is to pray. You want to see change in your church? You ask God to change your church. Give Him the opportunity to do what you can't do with your scheming and your manipulation and your campaigns. I'm not saying we've got any. I don't know about any. We're just preaching through the book of James, and I'm just telling you, I've been a pastor a long time, and I know how church works, and I know when it's not working well, and it doesn't work well when you do that. It works best when I get on my knees and you get on your knees, and we say, God, would you show us which way to go? Would you show us what to do? And would you show us how to do it? James says, you're not praying. And when you do pray, you pray wrongly. You have the wrong aim, the wrong goal, and the wrong idea of prayer. It was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who taught us how to pray. At least he gave us a good example there. He said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. One of the many conditions of prayer is that a thing must be the will of God. Do you know that I cannot declare my own will to be done in prayer? I can't declare a thing to be done. James cautions us in this very book. He said, rather we should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Our praying ought to be kingdom praying. Rather than praying for my way and manipulating people and circumstances to bring it to pass. And by the way, I have a big problem with this. I have a big problem with sending out a newsletter and say, I am praying that God will provide. Would you help me? You know who I'm asking? I'm asking you. I'm not asking God. I have completely stopped asking God, and I'm saying, I'm asking, I'm praying, but would you help me? I think, really, that if, if, there, if there's a God in heaven, and I'm a Christian sitting on the church pew, and I believe in God, I ought to have the faith to be able to ask God and trust Him without any manipulation on my part to see if He's up there, to see if He's listening to me. And if He's not listening to me, then I probably ought to change my praying because I, I'm pretty sure He's up there. I need to change what I'm praying about because maybe I'm praying amiss so that I can consume something on my own lust. Our, king, our praying ought to be kingdom praying. And I ought to get on my knees and ask God to manifest His will and His power by changing the hearts of people in my church to be attuned to His own. And that includes my heart. Rather than me doing this or doing that or getting this group together and this group together and saying, let's accomplish this or that, we need to say, God, would you do this? Would you change the hearts of people? You know, down through the years, <clears throat> I've heard people say, well, what we need in our church is a few funerals. I always say, no, that's not what you need at all. And that means we need so-and-so to die. And get, can you imagine somebody say, people say that. They, they need to die and get out of the way so that we can have our way. That sounds a lot like what James is saying here. No, you know one of the greatest things in the whole wide world that I've seen down through the years is when that cantankerous person that you can't ever 
get to see things, maybe the way you think they ought to see things, is when you get out on your knees and you pray, God, would you change that person's heart? And when that person's heart gets changed, it opens the floodgates. And God is able to do great and mighty things, things you never dreamed. We ought to evaluate our praying by the question Jesus asked Mary. You know, Mary came one time and said, Hey, Lord, we're having a, we're having a wedding here and we sort of run out of wine. Well, she didn't call him Lord. She said, Jesus, I guess, because it was her little boy at that time. And so she would realize the new relationship they were in. He said, Woman, and I believe he said it very tenderly, what has this concern of yours to do with me? That question ought to evaluate every prayer that we pray. What has this concern of yours to do with me? Is this some selfish request I'm making? If so, James says, I ask amiss. That prayer has missed its target. He said, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you may consume it on your desire for pleasure. Will the answer to this prayer simply bring you comfort or pleasure or accomplish your will or will it be an opportunity for Jesus to display His glory? With every request I make to God should come a surrender that relegates that specific request to Christ's sovereignty. Once Mary made the request, you know, she didn't repeat it. You know what she said to the servants? She didn't say to them, now, you, you go ahead and you get everything ready because He's going he's he's to do this. No, he, she just said, whatever He says to you. Do it. She left the matter completely to him. Believing prayer places its confidence in the activity and the sovereignty of God rather than in the schemes of man. I serve a God who sits on the throne of heaven. And he can accomplish anything he wants to accomplish in anybody's life and in anybody's heart, including my own. And I need to surrender your heart to his leadership and lordship, and I need to surrender my heart to his leadership and lordship. And before I can ask him to, to win your heart over to his leadership and lordship, I must first make sure that I have yielded my own heart to that desire that he has for me. Believing prayer is confident in the fact that whatever concern of mine I surrender in the hands of the Lord Jesus will be better cared for than if I control the matter myself. The greatest things I've ever seen God do in the church were His ideas and not mine. You think about the things that happened here. I think about the things that have happened here over the last 18 months. And I see many things that the Lord has done that we weren't even expecting to have happen. And they've just been done. We didn't twist any arms or... The Lord just did them. We're getting a new sign. We didn't even ask for one. We just got it knocked down by a car and, and now we're going to get one. Things happen when God wants them to happen and when we surrender ourselves to the Lord's sovereignty. The biggest messes I've ever seen in a church... We're in those moments when somebody else wanted to manipulate the circumstances and orchestrate change or exercise control. The greatest thing you can do with your life is to surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
The greatest thing you can do for your family is to surrender your family to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The greatest thing that you can do for your church is to let it go and surrender it to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not my will, Lord, but thine be done. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do great things in and through the life of this church. Help us, Lord, to to surrender ourselves and our will to you so that we want only what you want and that our greatest desire is that you be glorified by whatever happens. Lord, we plan, but as we plan, help us to surrender our plans to your sovereignty, to your complete control. Give us your leadership and your lordship. Show us what to do. And God, surprise us. Continue to surprise us by spontaneous sovereignty, things that we weren't even expecting. You have said that you are able to do exceeding abundantly all that we can ask or even imagine. And so, Lord, what could we do if we surrendered ourselves completely to you? What could we see? What could you do here? Please, Lord, work in this invitation time. 